So one of the uh, objectionable, uh, irrational, easy to criticize things uh, about our faith is this, is that we turn to God when bad things happen, believing he could have kept them from happening in the first place. <laughs> Logically, this makes no sense. Uh, but isn't it true? Right? And don't we all do this from time to time? When bad things happen, we turn to God and we have this crazy confidence that, well, God, you could have prevented this from ever taking place in the first, first place. But now that it has, right? Now that it has taken place, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to uh, the only one who could have kept it from happening to start with. Right? But at the same time, while we're doing that, and it seems irrational, like, well, you know, if he cared, he wouldn't have let it happen. And, you know, so didn't answer the prayer to stop it from happening. Why am I going to turn now? At the same time, many of us are left with the idea of, well, where else am I going to turn? It's not that I really think this is a rational thing to do or a logical thing to do, uh, but what other option uh, is there? Right? And so are we crazy? Are we naive? Some would argue wholeheartedly, yes, we are. <laughs> yes, we are. That's what some would argue. But in fact, for many, this dynamic and this kind of contradictory idea that we run into within ourselves um, is what has caused a lot of people to walk away from the faith. Like, well, if God cared enough to, didn't care enough to let it happen, why am I going to bother chasing him after it did, right? And just between you and me, in the room, I get it. It makes sense to me that some people can't get past this idea, that some people experience some things uh, that are just so traumatic. And listen, as a pastor, I have seen a lot of people and dealt with a lot of people who have gone through a lot of things. Um, some people have experienced such horrific circumstances that as they tell their story, I can't hardly stand to sit there and listen to it. And if I even begin to start imagining myself in some of the stories that I've heard and imagining having to go through, especially when it touches on dealing with your kids, and I try to imagine, I, I've got to stop myself from imagining that it's my kids and going through this. When, when, I, when I've seen this, um, these, these, there's feelings of, of God a lot of times boil down to, like, Andy, even if God is there, because of what he didn't do already, it doesn't matter what he does from here on out. Because of how he was already absent and allowed this thing to take place in my life, it doesn't matter moving forward what he does. I'm done. I'm done. And, it, and, it, and you know, talk about, talk about feeling powerless in a situation. Do you know what words there are to be said to somebody in that situation? None. There are no words. And if there are the words, I'm not smart enough to figure out what those things are. Especially, especially if it's somebody that already knows all the verses, that already knows all the stories, that has grown up and, is, and they've gotten to a point of, yes, I know everything you can point me to right now. Not going to do anything for me. Those are difficult situations, right? And I've told people, I've sat across the table from people and I said, listen, if your faith doesn't survive this, doesn't make this 
make it through this experience, like that is completely understandable. I get it. I've told people, I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a professional Christian, right? <laughs> it's my job to be a Christian for everybody. There are some people I've sat across the table and I've told them, I'm not sure my faith would make it through this. And those are heavy moments. And some did lose their faith. Some did, but there are others who have been through those types of experience and been through this incredible low in their life. And somehow, for some people, um, their faith stayed strong. For others, they lost it. And then they began to rebuild their faith as the years moved on. And it wasn't the same faith that they built back. It was a different faith. It was deeper. It was better. It was a faith that wasn't propped up by, you know, everything will get back to normal eventually. Because there's some things that you never get back to normal from, right? And what they recovered when they recovered their faith was a faith in God. And that sounds really like, well, of course, what other faith would it be? I'll tell you what other faith it would be. It wasn't, some of us have faith in the promises of God. Some of us have faith in the blessing of God. That is wholly different than just having faith in God. Because all of the other stuff, all of the fluff, all of the pretenses, all of the everything's got to go right has all been stripped away. And if there's a faith to be had, it's just in God. Now, if you're in a situation that maybe you, you're going through something difficult right now or somebody close to you has had their faith shaken, th- this may help you to know. These, these are the kind of things that help me as I'm going through the scripture and reading and discovering things. Um, is that the men and the women who brought us the message of Jesus, they walked through similar valleys, right? They walked through tough times, valleys filled with random acts of violence, with unnecessary suffering and with unanswered prayer. Every single follower of Jesus in the New Testament experienced these things. And yet somehow, some way, they believed and they persevered. Right? There was an episode early on in the church's history where um, one of the people put out a prophecy that there was a famine that was going to be coming to most of the Roman Empire. And it was specifically going to hit the people around the area of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And it's amazing if you read, read the, the, the passage right before what we're going to read today, that a group of Christians who were literally a month's worth of travel away took up offerings <laughs> took time away from we've got to take care of ourselves during this time and gave to the group of people, the Christians in Jerusalem who would be most affected by this. It was an amazing story. But as the word of this prophecy spread, this famine is coming. Um, Something else happened in Jerusalem leading up to that. Everybody's worried about this famine that's supposed to be coming. How are we going to survive? Because you got to remember in the ancient world, like, most people didn't eat that much anyway. If you lived in the ancient world, you were hungry a lot. It wasn't like what we've got going on today. And so famine meant not just not eating. Famine meant for most people not surviving. And leading up to this, leading up to this, there was 
something else terrible that took place for the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. Something random, something seemingly wholly unnecessary, something extremely dark for the followers of Jesus that left Jesus' followers wondering where in the world was God? Where was he? Right, here's what happened. And just to put this into perspective, this is about 15 years after Jesus left the scene and the church began to grow and to spread. Here's the account of it. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he tells us this. It was about this time, 15 years after, that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. You'd also read that, intending to torture them, intending to make, to, to make a lesson out of them for all who would be watching. Now, this Herod that's referred to here, this is Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great. If you remember Herod the Great, he's the one who had all of the babies in Bethlehem killed right around the time of the birth of Jesus. So violence ran in the family of the Herods here. And the some in this passage he's talking about, arrested some, those were the original 12 disciples. Those was who he had targeted to arrest, right? And his first victim, his first victim was an extremely high profile target because it was one of Jesus's first apostles. Here's what Luke tells us about it. He had James, the brother of John, who was one of the original four. James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. In other words, he hadn't beheaded. There was James, John, Peter, and Andrew. Those were the original four. And he got one of them. Had him put to death. Now, this was a huge blow to the morale of the, of the early church, especially in that area of Jerusalem. But as word spread that this terrible thing had taken place, right? And, but, but even though it was a terrible thing for the followers of Jesus, it won Herod political points. Right, the people who were against this movement, it solidified their partnership with them, right? And so in fact, here's what the text says. When he saw that this met with approval among the Judeans, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now, you remember back, um, remember back in the day when after 9-11 happened and we were gonna go do our war on terror, and um, they made, that, they made the, the deck of playing cards that had all the different terrorists on it. And so it was like, you know, the Ace of Spades was, like, that was the big one, right? That was, I think, where the Ace of Spades was been lying. And then they all kind of went down from there. And however high you were on the, you know, on the cards, that's how important of a figure you were. Like, Peter was the Ace of Spades in his target. Like, he was the... He was the one that was up there, right? Because next to Jesus himself, which they thought they had already taken care of, he was the biggest fish. And this would keep the taxpayers happy and would keep the religious people happy. And if you know anything about the way that it all operated, Herod's one job was to keep the peace and to keep the money flowing into Rome. And so perhaps this would quell some of the anti-Roman sentiment because this was taking place around the time of the Passover celebration. And that was always when the anti-Rome sentiment was at its highest in Judea, was when everybody was gathered together 
for this festival. So after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for trial after the Passover. And then here it is. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. They were praying specifically for Peter's release. And there's this dynamic that we're talking about. This idea, God could have kept something from happening. He had the power. All he had to do was want to, right? But when he didn't, turning to him anyway. This is one of the many places where believers of the first generation believers, where their experience intersects with ours. Where we can look, because our worlds were different, our cultures are different, but we can look at some of their experiences and we can say, I've experienced that. And this is one of those. Thinking about it, they are asking God to deliver Peter mere days after he did not deliver James. Mere days. Why bother? I mean, honestly, why bother? If God, if God was concerned about Peter, God would have kept him from being arrested, right? I mean, honestly. So if God didn't stop Peter from being arrested, right, why turn to God after he's arrested? And if God didn't protect James, and now James' head and his body are in two different locations, why do they expect God to protect Peter? It's not, a, it's not a logical conclusion, right? In fact, that's what a lot of people would call crazy. You're crazy to think that. But I'm glad they were crazy. Because apart from their crazy, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. We wouldn't be meeting together. Because the message of Jesus would never have made it out of the first century. In fact, it turns out that they weren't crazy, really. Their faith was not misplaced, and neither is yours when you find yourself in those same situations. So for me, narratives like this are comforting, right? Because the people closest to the action, right? The people who actually knew Jesus, who met him, who interacted with him, who spent time with them were not immune to seemingly random, inexplicable tragedy and loss. And in spite of believing that God could have kept those things from happening, right, in spite of that, they turned to God for comfort and help anyway, right after they happened. So when you find yourself when you find yourself praying to the very God who did not come through in the first place, who did not answer your initial prayer the way you wanted, the way you expected, the way that you thought he should, right? Or the way maybe that he answered the prayer of the person next to you and not yours. You're in good company because those who were closest to Jesus had the exact same experience. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Mary, 
Martha, they all experienced this. The men and the women whose faith laid the groundwork for the message of Christ to spread eventually throughout the world. Their irrational, in spite of, God, where are you, faith, is why the message ever made it to the 21st century. Now, Herod doesn't end up executing Peter, right? And you know this. If you, were, if you joined us earlier uh, in the year, uh, we'd spent about seven or eight weeks talking about how Peter makes it long beyond this and ends up writing that letter in prison. That was the book of Mark that we went through. And we're going to pick up that narrative in a couple weeks. He doesn't, he doesn't get executed here, right? And he, Peter, before he wrote that final letter, he wrote letters to other groups of Christians, giving them advice, giving them encouragement, telling them things that he thought that they needed to know, right? Ones who were suffering because of their faith, who were going through these types of tribulations and trials and persecution. And here's what he writes to the group of them. Uh, in Jerusalem, right? Now, before I read this, keep in mind, keep in mind that by the time he's writing this letter, Peter has been arrested multiple times. He's been beaten and flogged. He carries scars on his back. He's been living as a fugitive for years, hidden underground. In fact, he kept his whereabouts so concealed that nobody, even to this day, Because the people who did know, and I have a feeling Luke, who wrote Acts, knew, didn't write it down and didn't tell anybody. And so to this day, we don't know where he hid out between this and Jerusalem that happens and eventually him being arrested and executed in Rome. But in spite of all of that experience, here's what He says, in 1 Peter, he says this, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To which, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I read a verse like that, especially if I'm going through some things, and I'm like, wait, 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 Peter. You've been arrested multiple times. You've been flogged. You're scarred for life. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ did nothing to stop it. You have a price on your head, right? Stephen's dead. James is dead. The apostles have been scattered. What are you talking about when you say praise be to God? And Peter would say, well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what I'm talking about. Because in his great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In other words, your prayers may not all get answered, right? And you may never understand the seeming randomness of life, but you have hope. And your hope isn't anchored in a theology. Your hope isn't anchored in making sure that you believe all the right things. Your hope isn't you found a group of people that believes exactly right and as long as you're accepted and have a place and things are going through, your hope going well, your hope is good. No, 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 no. Your hope, Peter would tell us, is anchored to an event. An event that rekindled Peter's hope. 
the resurrection of Jesus. And then he says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In other words, in light of all that God has done for you, you can find joy in the middle of the difficult times, right? And Peter, and Peter, who suffered in ways that we couldn't imagine, he says this, he says, listen, the suffering is temporary. The difficult times are temporary. And the joy that you can find isn't because of the trials, it's in spite of the trials. So Peter, 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 let me get this right. So Peter, grief, trials, uh, suffering, randomness and events going on around life, those are not evidence that God isn't listening or isn't involved. Those things don't indicate that things are starting to spin out of control here or that we've done something wrong. And Peter would answer, no, not at all. Not at all. That's not what any of those things are pointing to. He would say this. He would say, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, and he talks about your faith for a minute. It's of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it has been refined by fire. But that genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Peter, 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 Peter. So we should expect that end part to happen. Right? The glory of Jesus is going to be revealed through my trial. We should expect that. He would be like, yeah. And, and he would tell us, when you're going through those difficult times, when it seems like God isn't coming through or isn't listening or isn't even there, people are watching. And people who suffer in the same way that you're suffering. Because listen, even though to us, when we're in the moment, our suffering feels like it's wholly unique to us and that it's special to us, it's not. A lot of other people are experiencing the same kind of things that you're experiencing. And those people are watching you as you're going through those things. People who are suffering without hope will be drawn to your hope and your peace. In fact, they may be drawn to the object of your faith because as they watch, the darker the things seem to get for you, the brighter your hope can shine. And then I think he would say, as Jesus said, I think he would say, listen, as you suffer and as you try to explain the unexplainable that goes on in your life, as you navigate your way through things that you never anticipated and for which, let's be honest, there are no answers to a lot of these things, let your light shine in such a way that people see your response and look up. He continues. He says, though you have not seen him. Talking to the people who are following Jesus, who have never met Jesus, who never saw Jesus. 
They're basing it on what they've been told from the witnesses who did see and experience those things. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith the salvation of your soul. And once again, I read passages like that and my nature is to push back against it. It's to push back. So Peter, 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 what you're saying is this, if I'm getting you right, that the inconsistency and the randomness of life doesn't throw you off or undermine your confidence. I mean, come on, they got James. They're coming for you. You're not shaken at all through this, right? But Peter would say, no, because my faith does not depend on consistency, certainty, or my ability to interpret the circumstances going on around me. That's not what my faith is based on. So when those things are seemingly out of control, my faith is not shaken by it. It's not shaken by the randomness of life because I saw the best possible example of a person die the worst possible death. And it made no sense to me at all. None. And then God raised him from the dead. The rest is just details from that point. So of course, when I go through my thing in comparison to that, no, my faith is not shaken. And then in the same letter, in the same letter, Peter gives us the strangest to-do list. He gives it to the, his readers of the letter and I think it applies to us. And it's really odd. And if you wanna go through and take a glance, go ahead because we're gonna get into that next week. But back to the storyline. So, so Peter, God allows, God allows Herod to execute James, right? Allows Peter to be arrested. Then, then Jesus' followers in Jerusalem are asking God to facilitate Peter's release, knowing that Herod may be coming for them next. And then for reasons that made absolutely no sense to them in the time, but would become clear later, it, this happens. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter on the side and woke him. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrist. And then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. He thought it was a dream. <laughs> He's like, ah, isn't this great? So he starts following the angel in his dream. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And it opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Now, I know what some of you are thinking because I think the exact same thing. I read that passage and I go, really? <laughs> I mean, anybody got the really? We can be honest with ourselves. 
Really? You expect me to believe that? So why doesn't God do those kinds of things anymore? Right? And why doesn't God do that kind of thing for me, seemingly ever? Because that's a pretty big deal right there, that thing that went on. But let me tell you what Peter and his friends were wondering. Here's what they were wondering. Why didn't God do that for our friend James? Why would he do this for Peter, but he let James lose his head? And they never got a good answer to their question. That's another thing that kind of helps me as I'm reading through the scriptures. Is that they went through things and they had legitimate questions and never got answers to them. And that is so difficult for us because when we live in an era where anytime we want the answer to anything, we reach in our pocket, pull out the Google, and get our answer. The idea of having unanswered questions is wholly foreign to us. But yet, if you are going to have a legitimate experience in following Christ, you're going to have unanswered questions. And you're going to have to learn how to be okay with that. Because we may never get satisfying answers to some of the deepest questions that we have. And I know that is not emotionally satisfying. <laughs> and I'm sorry that I'm not one of the raw, raw, speak them up loud preachers that tells you this book holds every answer you need. I'm going to be honest with you. It doesn't. It helps, but there's questions. You're going to have to come to grips with the idea of never getting answers to. Now, when Peter realizes, kind of wakes up and realizes like, oh, wait, this is real. I'm outside of the city walls. It wasn't a dream. I'm safe. Here's what happens. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So Peter, when he kind of comes to the realization like, oh, this is happening, he knows he doesn't have much time. They're going to be looking for him quickly, right? And he doesn't want to incriminate all of his friends by going to their house and getting them in trouble, right? So he runs to the door of a home that he had been to many, many times before. So Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. <laughs> was so excited, just left him standing out there in full view of everyone. Now remember, 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 she runs into this room with this group of people who are in the moment praying actively for Peter's release. But apparently, here's another thing that gives me, faith, gives, me, gives me encouragement. Because have you ever prayed a prayer and even while you were praying it, you were thinking, yeah, there's no way this is getting answered. Anybody? And you, when I find myself doing that, I'm like, oh, well, of course it won't. Because I've been in the revival services 
where a preacher stood up and told me, the only reason you don't get your answer to prayer is because you don't have enough faith. Anybody ever hear that? And so, of course, if my prayer is not getting answered, it's because I don't have enough faith. And then here I am in the middle of my prayer. Lord, will you please, I know you're not going to, do this thing for me, even though you won't. And so I know I'm doomed from the beginning. Well, guess what? I'm in good company. You're in good company. They didn't even expect their prayer to be answered because listen, listen, listen to their response. And this, this, is, this is more evidence to me that, that the accounts of Christ in the early church that we have in Acts are dependable accounts because the writers did not write the followers in as heroes. They didn't even write themselves in as people who had a little above average faith. They were honest about the fact we didn't expect it to happen. They didn't experience miracles every day. Sometimes it seems like it because we can read through them real quick. And so it seems like they were all over the place. There weren't a lot of miracles going on in this time period. Right? And they certainly didn't expect one at this time. So now when, when, when Rhonda tells them, when Rhonda tells them that Peter's at the door, he, here's the response. You are out of your mind. Lord, Lord, please, please get Peter out of prison. <laughs> Peter's out of prison. You're crazy. I mean, I love it. They are me. <laughs> They are me, right? To which we say, wait, 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 guys, weren't you just praying this? Yeah, but we didn't expect it. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be this angel. <laughs> it must be a spiritual counter. In fact, what their thought really was, was, oh, he's already dead. And if there's a Peter out there, that's a Peter ghost. So they thought the worst. They went from he's not answering this prayer to, oh my goodness, the worst has already happened. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Astonished. Imagine that. Followers of Jesus who met him. Some of them spent time with him were amazed that their prayer was answered. You know what that tells me? They had a whole lot of unanswered prayers. They went through a whole lot when God did not come through, did not behave the way they thought he should behave, did not show up. That's what that tells me. Now, at this point, they're so delighted. Peter's standing there. They're screaming and jumping up and down. Woo! Yeah, Peter, Peter. But they're still out in the street, right? So here's what happened. Peter motions with their hands to be quiet. He's like, guys, guys, I just escaped. They're coming after me. Let's quiet this down a little bit. Let's get inside, right? That's what he said. Be quiet. And then he tells them what happens. That's what the little dot, dot, dots. He re Repeats the story for him. Here's how I got out. And then he says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left for another place. And I think Luke knew the other place. But I think he didn't write it down. He didn't write it down in his document. I think just in case his document fell into the wrong hands. But here he is, right? And then he wrote this. 
Remember, Peter's still alive at this point, and he's a wanted man. Right? And so Peter went underground, and Luke gives more detail. And as you might imagine, there's another side of the story. There's another group of people who aren't happy and rejoicing over what took place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Can you imagine waking up? Four of us, how did he get out? After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Which gets into a whole nother idea that we don't have time to talk about today, but we'll get into it another time. Is How is one person's deliverance and joy an innocent person's undoing? They didn't let him go. Well, you marinate on that one for a while till we eventually get back to it. So here it is, executed. So now Herod's publicly humiliated because he had promised this public trial. This was going to be his moment. He had gotten the number one guy, right? And now, all of a sudden, it's not happening. So here's what Herod does. He leaves town. He heads to his beach house, which is on the Mediterranean Sea. And while there, there's a group of people from a nearby city who request to have audience with him because they're dependent on, uh, on uh, Herod and his support and his favor for their food supply. And they know there's this famine that's allegedly coming, right? And so they want to meet with him and make sure they're good. And so Luke tells us about this meeting. It says, on the appointed day of the meeting, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Now, what's interesting is that sometimes within these stories, there are some um, uh, non-biblical sources that talk about some of the same events, and you can get some ideas and some outside perspectives of the things that happened. Uh, there was a Jewish historian named Josephus, and he writes about this particular meeting that Jesus had, or that uh, Herod had on this day. And he writes in his account, um, he writes that the robe that Herod was wearing that day was made of silver. And then when Herod came and when he spoke to them, the sun reflected off of his silver on his robe and it caused this bright glow and this bright light to come off of him. And the crowd erupted and declared him a god. Now, here's how Luke writes that part of the story, <laughs> what they said. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. But immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> Our kids need to color that on their color pages back there, getting eaten by worms. <laughs> uh, now, Josephus, he wrote about that part of it too. Um, his version says that Herod was seized by severe pain in his bowels. <laughs> That's how he writes it. And that he was rushed off of the stage and a couple of days later, he died. Now, what do you think Peter thought when he got news that God <laughs> had killed Herod? What do you think? He probably, A, he was probably relieved that Herod was out of the way. Maybe he wouldn't be chased down so harshly. But I imagine he may have thought, well, God, 
if you had taken him out just a month earlier, James would still be with us. If you were going to do this anyway, why did you wait? Why did you wait until James was dead? And not to mention four innocent guards who didn't do anything wrong would still have their life. Because I'm sure they had families who now are missing them. And then Luke wraps up with this statement. He says, but, there's a lot in that word. But in spite of all of this drama, in in spite of all of the inconsistency, in spite of all of these unanswered questions, but the word of God continues to spread and flourish. And we know this because this is why all of these texts in the New Testament that we now have and that we read, this is why they were created to spread the message. This is why they were preserved. It's why the name of Jesus would eventually circle the globe. But on a personal level, these events and events like these and the response of the first century brothers and sisters is why To put it in the words of Paul, it is why you do not (laughs) grieve as those who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. It's why, to put put it, to borrow some of Peter's words, it's why you can cast all your cares on him for he cares for you in spite of what is happening around you, right? In spite of what's happening to you. In spite of your ability to, 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 to interpret and translate the circumstances to figure out what's going on. It's why, as the, Hebrews of, as the writer of Hebrews put it, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It's why we have hope even when we don't have explanations. If Peter is correct, If Peter is correct, then what strikes us in our life as random or unfair and unnecessary may in fact be random. It's probably most certainly unfair and perhaps unnecessary. But our hope in those moments is not in vain. Because we have a living hope that is anchored not in our ability to predict and control and interpret circumstances. But our hope is anchored in the event of the resurrection of Christ. But there's more to talk about when it comes to going through these things and wondering where is God. And we'll get into that next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, this is one of the most difficult things to come to grips with in our spiritual journey. This is what so many people can't make it past. God, if you had the ability to stop it and you supposedly love us, where were you? Why are we experiencing these things? Why do some of us go through unimaginable circumstances? And Lord, I would love to sit here and throw out a 
beautiful answer that wraps it all up. The honest truth is, I don't know. God, I pray that for anyone who is going through experiences like this, or has someone close to them going through this experience, Lord, as we think about this throughout the week, help us to begin to come to grips with the idea of answering the question of what is our faith rooted in? Because if it's rooted in the circumstances around us, our faith will not last. We cannot have faith in the blessings of you, Lord. We cannot have faith in the promises of you. That can't be what our faith is based on. It's got to be faith based on you and what you did for us at the cross. And let that begin to be a new basis for our hope. That even in the darkest moment, our hope shines bright. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. That even though we don't know how in the moment, gets us through our most difficult times. Be with us as we go this week. In your name. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, look forward to next week as we wrap up this short conversation uh, talking about where is God in the difficult times.